From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that's both sick and healthy. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Schrodinger's Box. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. So we're going to push through this episode today. <laughs> yeah. You may hear it in our voices. And <laughs> and we're going to uh, have to edit out a lot of coughing, but it's going to be a good episode, I think. I think between the two of us, we're either perfectly healthy or completely miserably ill. Yeah. A superposition of those two states. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so it was recently announced that the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics is being awarded to John Clauser, Alan Aspect, and Anton Zeilinger. And essentially, the the press releases for these awards came out, and the headlines for each of them basically said something along the lines, for instance, the Scientific American article said that the Nobel Prize was awarded to physicists for discovering that the universe is not locally real. Wait, say that again? The universe is not locally real. Okay. Now, if you actually read the press release and go through it carefully, they were very careful to define what they mean by local and by real. And by not. And by not. (laughs) (laughs) So kudos for that, but major demerits to them for using two words that everybody thinks they already understand. So, Chad, what does real mean? I suppose demonstrably in existence. And local? Local in this general vicinity. Yeah, well, so you you have to read the As opposed to distant? (laughs) <laughs> as a, yeah right uh, well the issue is that in a press release like that lots of people already had their own definitions of both of those two words and so then if you go on social media you can see all the different interpretations from that oh boy but people interpreted that headline as physical reality is not actually real and uh, unless we're actually looking at something physicists prove that it doesn't actually exist and other headlines uh-huh. like that and snake oil okay. salesmen were like, as I've told you all along, um, uh-huh. nothing is real and whatever. Well, I'm glad we're going to set this straight. I'm sure this episode will catch fire on social media and just correct all of that erroneous thinking about it. That's true. Well, so. I, I should point out for five years running, we are the most popular science podcast based in McMinnville, Oregon. And that is thanks to you all, the listeners. So thank you for that. <laughs> we are local and real. <laughs> Anyway, I think the best way to go about this today is to talk about what they defined as being real and being local. And so we'll use those two to kind of set everything apart. Okay. So when the Nobel Committee was talking about real, they actually meant deterministic in the sense that... Okay. Yeah. In the sense that classically, if I knew enough about initial conditions of something, I could predict its behavior going forward. Like if I wanted to launch a rocket... Mm -hmm. If I know the direction that we actually started out blasting off and we're pushing a certain way, even if it's complicated, right? I mean, the calculations here are not necessarily easy, but they're all definitely possible to know like how to get to Jupiter, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's rocket science, but it's it's possible to do, right? Sure. Yeah. And being the opposite of that means that you cannot actually predict based on initial conditions is what they're trying to say. If we're talking about a quantum system. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, to... Then in that case, your rocket launching situation, no matter what you do, you can't accurately predict whether or not you're going to get your rocket to go where where you want it to go. Because yeah. there's no way for you to truly know what the initial starting conditions are. There there are unknowns in there that you can't account for or something. Is that the well, idea? So it, it's even more than that. I mean, so okay. in any macroscopic system, 
macroscopic meaning billions to many more than that of atoms, things are deterministic. And so with okay. a rocket ship, you can predict. Now, as, mm-hmm. as you're kind of hinting at, there are some things that are harder, like going through the atmosphere, there's wind. And so uh-huh. that may change our trajectory. And, and that's something it's, we can't really predict very well. You know, but so that would be something like noise is what generally like someone actually doing it would say, okay, well, that's noisy. Let's not let's shoot it in the general direction and then fine tune it once we're outside in outer space or something like that, which is what NASA would actually do. Right. And we're also not talking about, you know, rounding of zeros or anything like that. Like if we're trying to go to send a rocket to Jupiter, if we're trying to go off in a straight line and we're off by, you know, a fraction of a degree in one direction, that's going to add up over time and we would totally miss Jupiter from here. Right. right. But that's not what we're talking about either. We're talking about things that we could predict the behavior if we knew enough about the initial conditions here. Or if you had like a fine enough instrumentation to be able to measure it or fine enough yeah. instrumentation to be able to control it at that small of a level. So yeah. that's not what we're talking about. Right. Okay. And so a lot of people on social media have tried to explain the phenomena that people are are trying to talk about here by using a coin flip. And strictly speaking, a coin flip again is deterministic. It is a macroscopic system. And if I wanted to, I could probably build a little robot that would have a little piston to to flick the coin up and be consistent with it, right? To hit it with the same force at the same location on the coin. And, and then we mm-hmm. might be able to say, okay, well, if we start out with heads up and it's all this way, we might consistently be able to flip it the same way a hundred times in a row. Okay. But in practice, we generally would think of, oh, a coin. Okay. Well, it's kind of randomish because if I try to flip it a bunch of times, Half the time it'll end up heads, half the time it'll end up tails. And, and it's hard enough to control that most people can appreciate that it's it's random-ish. Okay. But it turns out when you get to smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller systems, we delve into the quantum realm. When we're talking about just a handful of atoms, there are certain things that we can't know the exact outcomes of them anymore. So one example would be we've talked about on the show about like radioactive decay. Like uranium will naturally decay into other elements over time. Now, we can predict that if I have billions of uranium atoms in a chunk of metal, that after a certain amount of time, that a certain percentage of those are going to have changed into something else, right? Okay. That's called the half-life and, and all this stuff. Okay. And so we know, we know the rate at which uranium in general will decay, but we don't know like this one atom, when is this one atom going to do it? Uh And so that's kind of what I'm trying to talk about here is that like, yes, I know if I have a collection of these things, they will all behave statistically in a certain way. I can predict if I have enough of them, I can predict what will happen. But I cannot predict what this one uranium atom will do at any given specific time. We could also do this with polarization of light, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you you probably have some polarized sunglasses and well, do you know what a polarizer does? I Yeah. So my understanding for talking about polarized light is that photons and a beam of light are oscillating in every possible plane. Mm -hmm. And you can think of a polarizing film as a a set of very close together parallel bars that basically strains out all planes of light that are not exactly parallel with those bars in the filter. Is that and so then only the light that was oscillating in that same plane as the film gets to the other side everything else is blocked out is that kind of what we're talking about yeah yeah okay. if i'm teaching about it i would generally talk about like a white picket fence and if i put a jump rope through it and okay. try to wave my arm up and down that waving motion would make it through but if i tried to go say left and right then that would get filtered by the fence yeah so the person holding on to the rope on the other side of the fence 
if you were going up and down with it, that wave would reach them. Right. But if you were going left, right, that wave would not reach them. It would end at the fence. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And if I did it, say, at 45 degrees relative uh-huh. to the fence, well, part of it would go through. Oh. The part of it that was going up and down would go through, but the part of it going left and right would end there as well. So we'd only get a fraction of the wave coming through. Mm, okay. But that's actually something that if I wanted to measure this, so light is a collection of individual photons of light. And so if I measured it by having a single photon of light and wanted to know what is the polarization direction of that single photon of light, it turns out that it's a probabilistic answer there. Mm. That if my photon of light is going up and down, like the fence, it'll go right through. If it's oriented exactly left and right, which is perpendicular to the fence, it will get blocked. But if it's, say, at 45 degrees, then it has a 50-50 chance of either going through or getting blocked. Hmm. And so, you know, if we have millions and billions of photons of light going through it, we would see the intensity of the light just diminished by that fractional amount. But any individual photon means that it has a chance of getting blocked and a chance of going through it. So, okay, so that that actually kind of, I know this is a bit of an aside. And so I've done this thing before where, you remember those old overhead projectors, right? Mm -hmm. That used to write on the little acetate sheets. Mm -hmm. So if you're projecting that onto a screen, right? And then you take a polarizing film and you put it on top of the light table. And then you take another polarizing film oriented parallel to the first polarizing film and you put it on top of the first polarizing film the light doesn't really diminish right but if you take that second polarizing film and slowly rotate it until it's perpendicular the light coming through gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until it goes all the way black and the films are perpendicular to each other and so is that the fact that it doesn't just go on 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 off accounted for by what you're saying right so by rotating that second one it's straining out more and more and more of the ones that are not exactly parallel. So the first film then is orienting all the light. So basically Mm -hmm. half the light is cut out entirely Mm -hmm. because coming from the projector itself is randomly oriented. Right. So then only the direction, the ones that are aligned in the right way will go through. And then the second one is lined up. When you first put it on there, it lined up the same way. The rest of the light, it was already polarized in that direction, so it's going to continue through. But as you're rotating it, yes, once you get to 90 degrees, it's completely blocked out. Mm -hmm. Because basically, the only light remaining was going, say, up and down. And now Mm -hmm. you rotated it so that the second one is only allowing things going left and right to go through. And so then Mm -hmm. no light can pass Mm -hmm. through that. But when you're at angles in between that, basically, the light, when it reaches that second film, has to choose. and, Mm -hmm. And you're affecting its state, basically. And because it's not at exactly zero or 90, there's a probability that it will go through. Okay. The closer that it is to being aligned, the more likely it is to go through. Okay. But then the probability decreases and decreases until ultimately it won't go through if you're at 90 degrees. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. But it is, it's kind of a weird thing to think about individual photons doing that. Mm-hmm. Because then it's just, it's probabilistic. It's like, all right, well, this photon, I mean, I know it's oriented at this angle, but I don't know if this particular photon is going to go through or not. Mm. I know that if I have a collection of billions of them, that this percentage of them will make it through. Mm-hmm. But I don't know about this one photon by itself. Right. Got it. And so that led to a lot of hand-wringing with physicists of the time, including people like Albert Einstein and this guy named Schrodinger. Okay. And they they were like, no, just like with the rocket ship thing, like if we knew enough details, maybe in practice, it's very hard to get all the details. So maybe in practice, we'll never be able to predict this one thing. But in principle, in theory, we just don't know what the variables are, but I'm sure there are more variables in there. Maybe they're hidden from us right now. 
Maybe mm-hmm. we can't zoom in far enough to actually see what those variables are. Mm-hmm. There's got to be something that's actually making the choices there. It's okay. not that we can still predict everything, that everything is still real, mm-hmm. but it's still deterministic, but it's just we don't know what to look for exactly yet. And so in the case of these photons, let me see if I can finish the thought. There is no additional measurement that you could take mm-hmm. that would allow you to say, that's a photon that's going to make it through, and that's a photon that's not going to make it through. Right. Okay, so I, th- I think I'm starting to get a handle on the difference between a deterministic system and this, uh, what do we call it, indeterminate system? Sure. Yeah. Sure, let's, okay, yeah. Or, or quantum, Trademark. let's say quantum. Oh, quantum, okay. Yeah. And so this uh, quantum system, the best we can do is say that probabilistically, this will be the outcome. Okay. And if we do this enough times, we will get the same percentage of the outcome every time. Mm-hmm. But we'll never know like each individual one, how it will behave. And so that's sort of the trade-off of these two things. And so, so essentially that kind of leads to this idea of, well, it seems that there are some things that we just don't know what they are until we actually measure them. And that's not to say that we don't know if we measure a bunch of them, what we'll end up with. But we can never know with one individual photon, one individual electron, one individual particle, whatever. We won't know what that particular thing will do in the situation. Okay. So Schrodinger actually came up with this analogy of that. In fact, to prove how silly this all sounds. (laughs) (laughs) And he, he came up with this analogy, which is now known as Schrodinger's box. In which he said, okay, well, what if we put a cat in a box and we have one of these systems going on? And he said, okay, let's have a radioactive system. I'm going to put, we can say uranium, but the half-life of that is like ridiculous. So we'll put something else in there that will decay and we'll set a timer. And if it decays within this amount of time, then that decayed particle will hit a detector and that will release poisonous gas into the box, which will kill. Hang on. So it's just one atom of this radioactive material. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So therefore that's important, right? Because what you were saying earlier is that if we've got a big chunk of it, then probabilistically we know how much is going to be gone after a certain amount of time. But if we only have one atom, we don't know when it's going to happen. Right. Okay. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. And so during that amount of time, then if it decays, then it will kill the cat. Okay. If it does not decay within that amount of time, the cat is alive and well inside of the box. Okay. And so he was using this analogy to say that there are hidden variables that we're not knowing yet. Right. And so, and he was saying like trying to point out that there are these differences between microscopic and macroscopic. And so he was saying like, yeah, just because we don't know what this variable is, this variable has controlled everything, was what he was thinking to say, well, sure, this decayed or it didn't decay. Just because we don't know whether it decayed or didn't decay, the cat is still dead or it's one of those two. We just don't know what it is until we open the box. Right. And so his mindset was to make this analogy to prove how quantum mechanics did not make any sense. (laughs) But, you know, history is quirky sometimes. And just like, you know, the symbol for the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in the United States are respectively a stubborn donkey and a slow moving elephant, Uh right? Neither of those are really complementary, right? Like if you wanted to make your own symbol for a political party, it would probably be like an eagle with fire on its chest and go, you know, (laughs) But somehow these things that were originally insults and were actually meant as insults are now like somehow official symbols of these two different parties, right? Yeah. Same thing with Schrodinger's box. (laughs) That Schrodinger came up with this to say, you know, this doesn't really make sense. And now people will explain Schrodinger's box to be like, obviously, this is what it means. And so it's, it's probably the least understood analogy that a lot of people know about, but don't actually understand it. Because quite honestly, 
the way that people will talk about it as, well, clearly it means this, is very hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And the way that it's now described is like, oh, well, until we open the box, until we make the measurement of this, the cat is both alive and dead. Oh, uh (laughs) that's not what it means, really. Well, that is the current interpretation that until we measure something, we don't know the state of it. Okay, so you're making fun of the idea of treating it as if it's both alive and dead. Or another way of saying it is we're treating this atom as if it has both decayed and not decayed. Well, the real trick here, though, is that it's until you measure it, uh-huh. it is both alive and dead. Until you measure it, it is in both of these states. And the issue with this, and also just like we started out with the top of the show, of like people understand the word measurement, they think they understand what that means. Like, oh, I opened the box and I looked. Is the cat alive or dead, right? But in that particular experiment, the measurement really happened when I turned off the timer. This particle was waiting to decay, and then I allowed it to decay over a certain amount of time. And as soon as I turned off the timer, I measured it. Now, whether I actually look at the cat or not doesn't matter. Because if I let the timer run to infinity, then the cat would, well, the cat would be dead anyway, but because it's infinity. But. <laughs> okay. Well, would have gone through all nine of its lives. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go kind of thinking about like the flipping the coin example, right? It doesn't mean, you know, if I flip the coin and then I catch it and I, I have my hand over it, right? Normally people will flip and they'll catch it and put it on the back of their hand. And then, then you look at it, right? When is the measurement actually happening in that case? I would say that the moment of measurement that I suppose most people would think would be when you actually lift up your hand and you see what is up, whether it's a heads or tail that's up. Right. I would claim, though, that the moment of measurement is when the coin would be, let's say there's no gravity or, you know, it'd be spinning around head, tails, head, tails forever until you actually put your hand on there and catch it. And so the moment that you catch it, that's the measurement. That's when it's determined whether it's heads or tails. Right. Because whether or not we look at it, it is what it is. Right. Okay. And so if we're talking about the coin flip, we don't know if it's heads or tails because it's it's cycling through both of them as it's uh-huh. flipped up in the air. But it, it's not until the moment where we catch it and we stop it from its natural behavior, mm. whatever it was doing all by itself, and then we catch it, that's when the measurement happened. Right. Same thing with that decaying particle. The measurement actually happened when we disturbed the system. When we said, all right, I've got this timer here. If we lit it only count up until this time, then that's the measurement that we had. When I shut off the timer and I'm like, all right, if you haven't done it yet, then you haven't done it. I affected the system at that point. Same thing with the polarizer. When the light goes through a polarizer and I detect it or not, I don't have to actually read the readout of the screen, you know, to know if it actually passed through. Mm. I affected the system by having the polarizer there. And so ultimately then the reality piece of this is all about, can we determine what will happen before we actually do the measurement itself? Not whether we're aware of the outcome of the measurement, but whether we have actually affected the system enough to make the output of that. I see. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so when we're talking about reality, we're talking about, can we make predictions beforehand? Or are there hidden variables there? Okay. And so that was still a big deal for a long time. And quite honestly, is something that we actually replayed an episode where we had my colleague Joelle Murray in the studio and we talked about quantum mechanics. And we were actually arguing about this exact point about hidden variables even then. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know that that's what I was arguing at the time, but I want to be on the hidden variable side of things as well. Uh I mean, like, that's what we want to think about. But the experiments that the Nobel, that these three gentlemen have done, have shown that it is not that case, that it is, in fact, not deterministic. Okay, it's not the case that we just simply don't know enough about it yet. It's that it is truly unpredictable. Yeah. Interesting. And then that led to Einstein then came up with another experiment to drive his point home that there must be some hidden variables. And this is where we get into the local, the locality question. Okay. So Einstein was like, well, 
what happens if we have, let's say, a particle decays into two different particles? And I'll use modern language for what we're talking about here. This is not the language he used at the time. But let's say I had two entangled objects together. And the entangled is going to be important. But when they separate from each other, then well, let's talk about like coin flipping, right? That let's say I have two coins that are entangled with each other. So that when I flip them, it always is the case that one of them, if I get heads in my right hand, I will always get tails in my left. And if I get tails in my right hand, I will always get the opposite. I will always get the heads in the other hand. So let's say that we have these two entangled objects in that way. And so he argued, well, how could they be doing the measurement far away if it's already been decided, right? And so let's think this through. So let's say I have two people, they flip the coins and they catch them and then they run off in opposite directions. Okay. And so let's say you and me do this. We, we flip the coins, but our coins are entangled and we run off in opposite directions. And then a little bit later, I look at my coin and I have a heads. Okay. At that instant, I know that you have tails. Okay. Because that's how our coins are set up. Okay, right? yeah. That we're always going to be opposite from each other. Well, that violated a big deal of Einstein. And this was Einstein's rule, so he cared more about it than anybody else. But um, <laughs> that information cannot travel faster than the speed of light. Oh, so so what that means is that if you and I are a fair ways apart, that you instantaneously know a piece of information. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, so, so we'll set this up more carefully that if we take our coins, we run far enough away, and then we decide to try to flip the coins at the same time. As soon as I flip my coin and I get a heads, I know that you've got a tails. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe if they were close by, then as soon as I got heads, then it sent some signal to your coin and was like, Psst, you got to be tails now. I don't care what you do, you know, make sure you're tails. Yeah. And that would make sense. But if we're far enough away and we do it quickly enough between the times, trying to do it at the same time, there's no way for them to communicate with each other. Okay. And so that violates a big part of special relativity, which is mm. what Einstein came up with. And so how do we deal with that? So that was the big part of the locality part. Can they actually communicate with each other? So Einstein would say then that, well, what actually happened was the measurement happened when we were nearby. We actually flipped the coins. We just didn't know we flipped the coins then. Uh -huh. And then we ran apart and then we looked at them. Well, you know, then that's pretty obvious. Like, well, no, obviously we did it early on and then we ran apart. And it doesn't matter that we ran apart. It was already determined before then. That's what a, somebody talking about hidden variables would talk about. Okay. But all uh -huh. of quantum mechanics was suggesting that, well, no, it seems like we're holding on to our coins. We're running far apart. And then we're flipping the coins. Uh -huh. And if that happens, then this is not a local experiment. We've somehow communicated vast distances without actually communicating. So that's, that's sort of where the rub is here. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean... Uh, in the coin flipping sense, I always get a little bit tripped up on this whole idea of entanglement, but that might be a whole other can of worms that we yeah. don't want to get into. I'm not I'm not sure. Well, so the entanglement would be, for instance, I could have two electrons that are entangled, like they would be in an atom. So each electron has a magnetic moment. It's like a tiny little magnet. And if they're entangled, then that means one is has its north pole pointing up and the other has a south pole pointing up. Okay. That's just how they're stuck together. And so if I separate them out, then it'll be a north and a south that separate out like that. Okay. Or I could have a system in which it creates two photons of light. One is polarized, let's say up and down, and the other polarized left and right. Okay. That they're guaranteed that they're going to be polarized 
arise in different directions, then that system then is entangled. We've got two photons that are entangled with each other in that way. Okay. So it's a little bit tricky to explain, but we'll talk a little bit later about why this is all important. Uh, being able to entangle things is because quantum computing is becoming feasible and important to modern society. And we'll touch on that very briefly at the end of here. But Okay. Yeah. Now, to really talk this through, there's a tricky detail because if I want to know, for instance, the measurement of the polarization, how do I measure it? Well, I have to use a polarizer. That's the only way I can know if I've polarized the light. Right. Yeah. And so if I have my polarizer aligned up down and the light goes through it, then I know that it was up down. Right. Okay. Or at least it was probabilistically somewhere in between up and down. It could have been, say, at 45 degrees, and then I have essentially another measurement right there. Right. And so I am necessarily, by measuring the outcome of this, I am necessarily doing another measurement at the end. So that's why it's reasonable to think that we actually flipped our coins when we're far apart. Because in order to know if the light is polarized, I had to do the measurement, which is effectively like flipping a coin all over again. Because I, I this is a random event. I don't know the direction of the polarization, right? I know that the two photons shooting in opposite directions are perpendicular to the other, but I don't know that relative orientation. Hmm. So like one could be 30 degrees this way, but then the other one is 90 plus 30, which would be 120 degrees, right? So, but relative to my lab equipment, I'm going to get different results from that. Mm -hmm. And so because the lab direction of the polarization, we don't know if we're ever aligned with that. Sometimes we will get different results, but it could just very well be, I could have photons that are both 45 degrees relative to either of my detectors. And so I, in that case, I, I've got 50-50 shot with each one. So I could have both of them go through or both of them not go through. And that right. doesn't violate what's going on. It's still that they were 90 degrees to each other. And so uh -huh. there's this detail of there that we have to pay attention to, that we are still talking about statistically what will happen. Now, obviously, if we did enough of these events, we'd have statistically, it would be the right proportions in each one. Mm -hmm. But we don't know for each individual pair of photons, which exactly is going on there. And so back in the 50s, a guy named John Bell came up with some experiments that you could do. Basically, he was like, well, what if instead of having our detectors set up straight up, right? Because if they're both straight up, we would expect one to go through and the other not to go through. But what if we intentionally had them at different angles? What if one was at zero degrees and the other was intentionally at 45 degrees? Mm. And then he reasoned out, he was like, well, we would give different ratios depending on whether it's a hidden variable or if we're doing the quantum mechanical experiment. Okay. And it's really going to get into the weeds and I won't go through all the different scenarios. But it turns out that if it really is a hidden variable, your proportionality of matching up is going to be smaller than if it really is a quantum mechanical measurement. Okay. But I'm, that, I'm trying to I'm trying to like construct a diagram of what this looks like in my mind. Well, so what you would have to do is I was reading something yesterday and they had a big diagram of this and they said, all right, here are all the possibilities if there are hidden variables. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. And you count through it all and you're like, okay, so if it's really this and this, then the best we could hope for would be, in the example they gave, it was like 67% of matching up. But if it's random, if it's the quantum states, then we could get up to 75% matching. Mm. So then if you're trying to do this experiment, that's what you're looking for. Are we closer to the 67 or are we above that? Are we at the 75%? Okay. And so effectively, that's what Clouser did. Mm. So he intentionally put two detectors at different angles. He was actually detecting polarization of light. And what he found was, yes, it's this quantum mm. mechanics system. It is not deterministic. It is not happening locally. And he verified what Bell's inequalities were telling him. Okay. Now, some other people came back and they're like, well, hold on. But maybe because you had your filters oriented in this way to begin with, maybe that's actually giving the information. So that was the hidden variable that we didn't know about, which now we're really getting in the weeds and I don't totally get it. But then Aspect, his experiment was to say, okay, well, 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to randomly orient my polarizers before each measurement so that nobody knows what direction they're going and then see if we get the same percentages and so forth. Uh huh. And it came out the same way. So then there were some other holes and I don't... So then Zeilinger came back and he was like, well, to close up every remaining hole, here are the other experiments we could do. And then, you know, it's randomized and, and I'm standing on one foot and I'm doing all this other stuff. And it came out the same way again, that it okay. turns out the universe seems to be non-local and non-real or non-deterministic. Hmm. At least at this very, very small level. Yes. Okay. At a very okay. small level, that's how it ends up being. And so all three of them were using photons of light. And so that's what we've ultimately found, that it's uncomfortable, but there are no hidden variables. It is really, we don't know the outcome of certain experiments until we actually affect them and make the measurements on them. Hmm. Interesting. So I'm guessing since this is a system where a little tiny bit of information is transferred over some distance, I guess, instantaneously, is that what is so exciting about this discovery in an applied sense for things like computing? Is is that what is sort of the basis of transmitting information? It's not actually about transmitting information rapidly. It's more about what this means is that we can have entangled systems. Okay. Well, so have you heard about quantum computing? I have heard of the phrase quantum computing, and I know what one and a half of those words means, I think. <laughs> One and a half. I started the day only knowing what one of those words means, but I think I'm about <laughs> halfway there with the other. All right. Well, so in normal computing, uh -huh. everything in the digital world operates on zeros and ones. Uh -huh. And so you can do a lot of very complicated calculations based on binary of just zeros and ones, where they're definitely a zero and it's definitely a one. Now, if you want to, for instance, if I wanted to crack a code, what I would have to do is be like, okay, well... You have to just try every iteration of every possible combination of things, which computers okay. do very well. They're designed to be able to do these repetitive things. Uh-huh. But it turns out that, you know, the reason, for instance, we have to change our password every six months and, and the passwords we're using have to get more and more complicated and longer and longer is because we have computers now that could hack our email. If we had just five letters, it can go through every combination of those five letters pretty quickly right. and hack our email. And so now passwords right. are getting longer and longer and you have to have an exclamation point and you have to have uppercase and lowercase and all these different things. You don't need an exclamation point. You need some weird letter, some character like that. Some sort of character. Yeah. Yeah. I just gave away part of my password. Oh, man. Which is password exclamation point. <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs> But it turns out that with quantum computers, you have these bits, which are called qubits, that are actually quantum states. And so if it's possible to actually entangle all of these qubits together at the same time, then when you're asking the question, can I hack into this person's email, you're not trying every combination sequentially. You're sort of able to try every combination all simultaneously. Hmm. And that actually makes it possible to spy on other nations <laughs> pretty effectively. <laughs> And so actually the, the federal government of probably all the nations, but definitely the United States has put a lot of money into research into quantum computing. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea here is that you can basically do calculations where every single atom is random until the moment where we want to read out the information. And so by doing that, we're able to more quickly do and more easily do like very complicated calculations. Okay. So the reason this is all a big deal is because First of all, it's cool <laughs> that we can do things that we can have entangled photons, we can have entangled electrons, we can have entangled systems that are stuck together and doing different things until the moment that we actually measure them. That it's not that like I put them together and the fix is in from the very beginning. I can manipulate and do whatever I need to do and not until the moment where I actually try to measure them will they 
have to decide on what state they're mm-hmm. going to be in. I can mm-hmm. have all of them be in this squishy state where they're in every possible combination until the moment where I actually look at it. And so that's exciting just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, spying on everybody else, that's secondary. And But the, the fact that we can do this entanglement helps us understand the universe better. So regarding quantum computing and some of these different entangled particles or photons. You mentioned some examples earlier about electrons being entangled by the North Pole is up versus the South Pole is up Mm -hmm. on an electron or a photon being polarized vertically versus horizontally. And that still seems to suggest that there's sort of a this or that, basically two options, a binary set of options. Is that the case or, or are there three or four possible different states that entangled particles could take on. Well, so I chose to talk about those systems because they are two states. Uh huh. And the experiments that have been done to show that this works chose these two state systems specifically because it's easier to look at the data and figure out and definitively say, this is the answer. Uh huh. And for the quantum computing pieces, they've chosen that so that they can have two specific answers. Otherwise, it, it gets too complicated. Okay. But I would say in principle, yeah, you could have other entangled states that could be more complicated than that. Okay. When I talk to some of our colleagues in the chemistry department, mm-hmm. they like to make this joke about how they care about elements that have more than just one electron. <laughs> so, you know, that that's hurtful. Um <laughs> But yeah, sort of the joke in academia is that, you know, physicists know a lot about the hydrogen atom. But if you get to helium, helium is just hydrogen times two, right? No, that is too complicated. We can't (laughs) we can't predict what's going on there. That's way too hard. (laughs) All right. Well, cool, Mike. Thanks. Yeah. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rody Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode, or if you have questions about the universe that you would like us to tackle, email us at crisscrossingsciencegmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.